Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to our Global Conversations, Russia's Goals in Europe with Jill Doherty. I am Carolina Gustafson, Public Events Manager for Global Minnesota a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that has been dedicated to advancing international understanding and engagement for nearly 70 years. I want to thank all of you for your support. We know that personal connection creates understanding and we appreciate our members who act and support this mission. If you're not a member, please consider joining us today to power important conversations and enjoy special member-only opportunities. Programs like today would not be possible if it weren't for this engaged and curious community who cares about the world, about making important global connections and having conversations that have power to change the world. So thank you again. To learn more about becoming a member, please visit globalminnesota.org. Thank you as well to our program partners, the Minneapolis Central Library, Friends of the Hennepin County Library and the Landmark Center, until we're able to gather again in person, these wonderful venues, uh, we will continue to offer these global conversations virtually. A special welcome to guests who are now able to join us from across the country and across the world. Many of the topics for these global conversations are inspired by the Foreign Policy Association's Great Decisions Foreign Policy Discussion Program, which is coordinated here in Minnesota by Global Minnesota. Several of our local partners have paused their in-person Great Decisions programming during this time. Some have started to, to bring it to us again. Uh, so we also would like to welcome some of these partners, the, like the Edina Senior Center, Friends of the Edina Library, the Washburn Library, and the Plymouth Library as partners in this evening's program. Global Minnesota provides materials and invites experts to discuss key international topics and keep you all informed. If you'd like to follow along at home or in your own discussion groups, Global Minnesota members receive special discounts on the 2022 Great Decisions book. These deeply, deeply discounted books are available only for members and supplies are limited. So get your order in soon to receive your book. Today, you join us in the Kinan Institute on YouTube Live as we host Russia expert Jill Doherty to discuss Russia's goal in Europe. This session will be followed by a Q&A session moderated by John Rash, editor and columnist for the Star Tribune. Jill Doherty is an expert in Russia and the former Soviet Union. In her three-decade career in CNN, she served as a foreign affairs correspondent based in Washington, DC, where she covered the US Department of State and provided analysis on international issues. Previously, Doherty served as U.S. Affairs Editor for CNN International, Managing Editor of CNN International Asia Pacific, based in Hong Kong, and CNN's Moscow Bureau Chief and Correspondent. She also served as CNN White House Correspondent covering the presidencies of George H. W. Bush and Bill Clinton. It was a fellow at the Shorenstein Center of Media, Politics, and Public Policy at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government, where she pursued research on Russia's mass media. Please welcome Jill. 
Thank you very much, Carolina. It's really, really a pleasure to be back with you. You know, it's kind of like a, I think of it as a homecoming. Uh, it's one of my favorite events. And even though it's virtual, as we were saying before, I hope it will be in person soon. Hopefully and soon. I really respect uh, these global min uh, Minnesota discussions because, you know, you ask great questions. You're curious about the world. You know a lot about the world. And so I look forward to a wonderful conversation. By the way, Carolina, I hear a little bit of extraneous sound. I'm not quite sure who that might be coming from, but maybe everybody else could mute just to make sure. Uh, okay, all right. So what I want to do today um, is I wanna talk about Ukraine. And this is a watershed moment. There is no question, a very important, historic moment, I would have to say. I returned from Moscow about a week and a half ago. And uh, let me just pull this up. About a week and a half ago, CNN asked me to travel there to provide analysis of the war. And I want to tell you about that trip because I think it does illustrate what was going on um, in the war and also, you know, in American foreign policy at the time. And you could say, in the world. So let me just make sure I have all my, I see um, speaker is up, but it is a global Minnesota logo. Is that correct? I just want to make sure that people can see what I'm um, saying. I do not see myself as speaker. So I just want to make sure we're cool before I go into my exciting technical adventure. Yeah, we're seeing you, you're screen. good to go. Okay, okay, great. All right, so what I wanna do is um, share my screen because I took some pictures as I was there in Moscow. And let me just pull it up here. And I hope it works. If it doesn't, I will immediately cease this insanity. But um, let's see, share screen. That's interesting because it is not, well, let's do it this way. I'll try to, to show you what's on my screen. There's my whiteboard, which is not what I want. This is funny, we tested this out in advance. So I think we're having a few little issues here, but let me just check. I'm sorry, people. You, okay. I'm sure you, you are, are okay. all. Uh, the funny thing is though, I am not seeing um, what I had on my screen before. So two more seconds, and then I will um, see if we can do this. Okay, well, if everybody can see me, I'm just going to see if I can plow through here at, without, unfortunately, these photographs, but I really want to show them to you. So if you allow me two more seconds, I'm gonna try this. Can anybody see? Hold on, sorry, just stop it for two seconds. I should be more technically astute than this, but believe me, I, I do this all These the time. These are the times so. we live in. <laughs> well, it is funny because it actually was- um, It was working great. It was working great. And what I am seeing has changed a little bit, but I'm gonna try to share my screen one more time and uh, just see, I'm gonna share screen. And then I'm going to try to trick it by going to, 
uh, I, I want everyone, you know, to try to understand. When I went to Moscow, um, the, the, there was an indication even months before that Russia might take some type of military action. And as you know, we um, we had indications from the State Department, from the U.S. government, that Russia probably would try to do something. A lot of people poo-pooed it. But at that point, I remember getting a call from CNN, and I'm no longer with CNN, but I was the bureau chief for about a decade, and I'm still what they call a CNN contributor. So I talk about on air about uh, Russian issues, and I try to explain. I'm kind of an, an analyst, you could say. And so when they called, they said, do you have a visa to Moscow? And I said, well, I happen to have a visa in my passport. And they said, good, okay, great, boom, hung up. And a couple of months later, they called up and they said, you know, can you go to Moscow tomorrow, basically? So I was on a plane rather quickly. And the timing was really important because I arrived on February 15th, which was literally just in time for the invasion. So even before I left, Putin was issuing an ultimatum to NATO and to the United States. And essentially what he was saying is, number one, no NATO enlargement. Forget about it. Uh, you, can, you cannot expand NATO. And that means Ukraine cannot be a member of NATO and Georgia cannot be a member of NATO. And what's more, he said, you have to withdraw those promises, which are, we can get into that maybe in Q&A, they're not very concrete promises, but the, the idea was eventually in the future, right now, neither country is going to join NATO, but in the future, you could, you could try. Uh, so the, also the other thing that Russia was demanding is not only you know no expansion, let's roll it back. So they said, you have to remove all of your infrastructure, military infrastructure, weapons, missiles, et cetera, from those countries along the western border of Russia, which used to be part of the Soviet Union and includes Ukraine and many other countries in that area, and re just go back to the boundaries back in 1997, which is when Russia and NATO signed their agreement. It's hard to remember, but there was a time when there was an idea that perhaps Russia could join NATO. It never happened, but even Vladimir Putin at that point thought it might be possible. Amazing to think about at this moment. So the US government said, basically, that is a non-starter. None of those are going to happen. But the talks continued, but you can see that there was, there was ratcheting up. And I'm sure that you remember the United States saying, we believe there's a credible prospect of major military action by Russia very soon. And so now by this time I'm in Russia and uh, I'm watching on television constant 24-hour news about the coming whatever it was supposed to be. And you see military exercises between Russia and Belarus. Belarus, friendly, former Soviet Republic uh, on the border of Russia, very friendly to Russia. They invited the Soviet, the Russian troops to come and hold military exercises. That is on right on the northern border of Ukraine. So you can see this buildup. And 
the Russian government officials in the media and everybody else there on the Kremlin side was poo-pooing, laughing, mocking this. They constantly, I would watch so many TV shows, news shows that would say, uh, the United States says that Russia is going to invade tonight at 6 p.m. And then they would laugh and say, this is ridiculous. Russia has no intention. It, it's hysteria was the word that they use. Russia has no intention, is not planning any attack. But of course, as we know, this is all part of the information warfare. And I think it's interesting, maybe we can get into this in the Q&A. The United States for the first time took a different approach to disinformation. And what it did, and you probably remember this, the US was saying, um, was giving details of what Russia was going to do false flag operations, fake atrocities, et cetera, all that would be used as a pretext for invasion. In other words, you know, our people are being attacked, we have to respond. So again, laughter in Moscow, but it did happen. And I think um, before we get into the actual war and the invasion, it is important to remember that Ukraine, you know, was part of the Soviet Union. And at the end of the, the uh, Soviet Union, it became an independent country. So there were 15 countries that came out of the former Soviet Union. And Ukraine um, is a country that has a kind of a diverse population. The farther east you go toward Russia, toward that border, the more Russian speakers, although I speak Russian, when I go to Ukraine, I, and I haven't been there in a few years, unfortunately, but uh, I speak Russian with most people because a lot of, of Ukrainians do. But there is a, in the Eastern part, which I would call the Ukrainian Rust Belt. These were you know, cities that had a lot of manufacturing, manufacturing died up at the end of the Cold War. And they are, they are areas that eventually in 2014, when Russia, illegally annexed Crimea, which is another part of Ukraine. They also brought in troops that I should say uh, helped the uh, independence groups that were fighting for the independence of these two areas in that Donbass region, as it's called. And so there were two, what I would say, fake people's republics that were created. One was called Lugansk and the other was Donetsk. And these are completely fictitious people's republics, but it came into uh, to play a very important role as this unfolded. So in a technique that the Soviet Union used to use years ago, these two people's republics, in quotes, said, Moscow, please recognize us. We need help because the Ukrainians are attacking us. Now, I'm not trying to downplay what was going on. There was a conflict and there still is in that region between the Ukrainian government and those breakaway republics. And it is a war that even to this point, even before the fighting and generally in Ukraine uh, broke out, 14,000 people had died. So I'm not trying to demean that. But what I'm saying is that idea that these two republics would say, please, Russia, save us, was a classic technique that Russia has used in other areas. And sure enough, February 21st, the Russian parliament officially recognized them as independent, and that gave Putin 
the pretext to rescue them. So the invasion happened three days later. And we know that the operation was planned way in advance. And this is also another interesting subject to discuss a little bit later in Q&A. But you've probably seen that it is not going the way Putin wanted. The Russians are stalled in certain areas where they expected to just kind of run in there. The expectation was that it would all be over in two weeks at the maximum. And it's taking more than three weeks and Russia is not um, achieving the goals that it wanted to achieve. So we do know that it was planned in high secrecy. There were very few people in the Kremlin who knew about that. And there are indications that even some of the forces that are fighting there did not know that they were going to a war in Ukraine. So you can imagine they were quite surprised when they ended up being shot at by the Ukrainians. And also it appears that Putin was told by his military, don't worry, this will be a cakewalk. So it didn't happen. Immediately sanctions took place and sanctions to me, these are obviously the most serious sanctions ever leveled against a country by the United States and its allies, ever. They are very severe. I'm just making another note. Good question you ask how it's affecting average people, because I did see that, you know, people at ATM lines. Um, it is hitting, There were so it hit the central bank, um, Putin and his inner circle, the oligarchs, and, and now middle-class Russians who have been standing in line for uh, to try to get their money out of ATMs. And also Visa and MasterCard stopped working. In fact, right before, and I will tell you how I had to leave, but um, my credit cards were not working either. So anti-war protests broke out. Now, this is very significant because protests have been taking place in Russia going back, well, for a long time, but really going back to like 2011, 2012, thousands of people were on the streets protesting bogus election results, things like that, political issues. But the Kremlin continued to crack down on that. And so fewer and fewer people were willing to go on the streets and either be roughed up by the police or be put into a, you know, a work camp or a prison for years on end. So the people who showed up on the streets of Moscow, St. Petersburg, and literally dozens of cities, at one point I saw five zero, 50 cities across Russia where they had at least some type of demonstration or protest. Um, the latest figures that I saw, which are collected by an independent organization um, as to how many people have been arrested, 15,000 as of today roughly 15,000. So that's pretty significant in three weeks. And then also um, the most important thing in terms of the media that happened, and the media has been cracked down on for ever since the beginning of Vladimir Putin. But now, just I would say a week ago probably, the parliament passed a law that made it against the law to spread disinformation, in quotes, or fake news, and the word fake is now a Russian word, fake. (laughs) I'm pronouncing it correctly in Russian, so fake is fake. So in any case, fake news about the military or 
the special military operation. You cannot say war. You can't say invasion because you have to call it a special military operation, or you can end up with 15 years in prison. So this created real problems you know, for the independent media and also um, for us, because as journalists, I had been doing you know, live shots and the bureau was working literally round the clock. I was actually working overnights. And when that law came out, it was so unclear and so broadly written that all the foreign media were saying, well, how does it affect us? You know, they, we talked to lawyers to try to figure out what does it mean? And sadly, it was determined that it would probably be a good idea to leave Moscow because you don't know what the Russian government is going to do. Would it you know, shut down the bureau? Would it arrest people? Would it make it difficult to get out? What would happen? So my, just personally speaking, um, when the sanctions came in, they hit the airline industry very hard. Boeing uh, was refused to service planes that were going into Russia. And so my flight out, uh, which was going through Frankfurt to DC, was canceled. And eventually we were trying to figure out, okay, how do we get out now that there's no flight? And I eventually got out through Dubai. And I understand that's where some Russian oligarchs are hanging out because it's kind of not um, part of the sanctions against Russia. So I did get out from Dubai, kind of circuitous way of getting back to DC, but I was glad to get out. And now I think, um, you know, if you look at the comments, you know, well, I'll fit, I should mention that a lot of my friends who are either colleagues in the media or who are, um, you know, just friends who tend to be kind of Western are leaving. Anybody who can get out, who feels that they are in any type of da danger, or maybe even that their career is going to be destroyed, are leaving Russia. So there is a massive brain drain. I haven't seen any concrete numbers, but I have seen some estimates of at least a couple hundred thousand people leaving Russia in just the past few weeks. This is going to be very bad for Russia. I know, you know, Putin may be happy to see them go. He may think that they are troublemakers, but in the end, it will be very bad for Russia. Now, yesterday, President Putin made a speech. And in that speech, which was pretty long and basically geared to the economic situation, I, I believe if you look at that speech, and you can probably just you know Google Putin's speech, um, well, you might have, um, look for the word scum, S-C-U-M, and Putin speech, and you will probably find it. This, as I said, is really an historic speech. It is the most Stalin-like speech that I have ever heard from Putin. Not that he hasn't said these things before, because he has, and I'll give you an idea of what he's talking about. But they were very, I would say, very, very disturbing for the internal situation in Russia. Because what he is saying is the internal enemies of the Russian state will be prosecuted by the state. And here's a quote from what he said. The Russian people will always be able to distinguish true patriots from scum and traitors and simply spit them out 
like a gnat that accidentally flew into their mouths. Such a natural and necessary self-purification of society will only strengthen our country. So in my book, that is going to lead to, no question, repression of Russians and domestically. And um, I'm very fearful for what is going to happen to society. So if you look at the picture, you know, the, the question that I guess I was asked to talk about um, generally, and John will be giving me, I'm sure, some great questions about that. But it's, it's kind of, where do we go from here and what happens with Russia's role in the world? I have to preface that by I'm not trying to diminish what is happening in Ukraine. It is, it is a nightmare. But I'm not a military expert, and my expertise really is in Russia. So I'm trying to look at, you know, Russia, which just a few years ago felt like very much part of the world, and it still is. But I am convinced that some of the people, President Putin and some of the people around him, which is a very small group of people now, essentially intelligence, you know, internal security people, that they are content to have Russia cut off from the rest of the world to do its thing. Now, they know it, it can't really do that. They know that, uh, well, I hate to say this, and I'm not joking, but I mean, their wives like to shop in Paris. They like to buy apartments in Miami. They want to, you know, flit around to the French Riviera. Well, they can't do that anymore because of all these sanctions. But more seriously, President Putin, in that speech that I just referenced yesterday, he said he was trying to um, calm down the Russian people to say, yes, we know these sanctions are going to bite. However, you know, we've gotten through a lot of things and what we will do, the Russian government will make it possible to mitigate the uh, impact of those sanctions. And he even said, for example, women who are pregnant, we will make sure that you get supplements to your income from the moment that you're pregnant till the time that your kid is 17 years old. I mean, he's obviously very worried about the economic situation. He made the point, which uh, he tries to make all the time, the sanctions will only spur us to develop our own domestic industries. But the industries that really matter, we're not talking about you know, oil and natural resources, but the things that require uh, research and development, things like microchips and micro, you know, components of computers, components for smartphones. Russia has very little of that industry. And maybe it will be able to develop it you know, over the few years, but it's not gonna be able to do it now. So I think the question is, I never used to think this. I'm, I'm telling you seriously, I never used to think that people like that in the Kremlin really wanted to shut the door to bring down the Iron Curtain, but in the media, they are doing it. They're doing it economically because now the sanctions are making it you know, virtually impossible for them to be fully integrated into the you know, world system. And um, I don't know what Putin thinks he will accomplish with this war. He, is, he appears to be intent on destroying Ukraine. Um, I talked about the demands. There are a couple of other demands that Putin has talked about, and one would be um, what they call demilitarization, which seems pretty obvious. They are demanding, Russia's demanding that Ukraine become demilitarized. 
That's one. Number two is denazification. So the, the Russians insist that Ukraine is a uh, is a neo-Nazi regime that I'm quoting neo-Nazi regime, of course, led by a Jewish president. Kind of strange, you know, how do you square that? But in any case, a Nazi-led country that is under the thumb of the United States. It's not really a country. Of course, all of what I'm saying right now is in quotes. Um, it is not really a country. It is totally under control of the United States, maybe NATO, but everything is under control of the United States. And Ukraine is being used as a weapon against Russia to destroy it, to bring down the Putin administration, to destroy the Russian economy, to take over its natural resources. And, you know, this is nothing new. Russia has been saying this for a long time, but I don't think it's said, that officials said it in quite these stark terms. And what I'm very worried about, and I think I'll I'll end on this, although I'd love to give those photographs one more try, but I'll end on this just, you know, editorially. I do think that something has changed with Putin. And I know this is, you know, the debate. Has he gone mad? Is he crazy? I don't think he's crazy because much of what he is saying, he said 15 years ago, he's been in power, as we know, for like 22 years. 15 years ago, uh, he was saying the same thing. At the Munich Security Conference, he said it, it, which is, you know, that the West is trying to bring us down. But in this speech that he made yesterday, he, he actually used the phrase, phrase, the West has ripped off its, its mask to show its true self. And I'm beginning to think that with the anger, the anger with which he said that is something that is almost frightening. I remember, and I'm almost finished here, but I do remember a conversation when I first came to Moscow. Not, not um, well, actually not first, but soon after Vladimir Putin became the president, he invited some journalists to come into the white into the Kremlin, and we sat around a big table. There were about ten of us sat around a big table in the Kremlin library. And I sat next to him because I was kind of one of the senior people. And I remember the conversation. He's very up on, you know, up on all details and data. He knows his brief. But when one of the reporters asked about Chechnya, that breakaway republic used to be in the south of Russia, he, he leaned in and he became like possessed and he started jabbing the air and he was furious. And I see that same kind of um, fury in these comments that he made yesterday, which leads me to think that he is intensely frustrated about what is going on. Right now, Russia is in serious economic trouble, and this war is not going the way he wants. And domestically, this could affect people. It's not doing it yet, except for the young people who are leaving. But it could affect even his older supporters if prices continue to go up. Inflation is now out of control. So I, I, and I say this with great sadness because I do um, have great affection for Russia, as I think you all know over the times that I've spoken with you. 
it's a place that I've been very interested in since I was in high school. And I speak Russian and I've been back and forth so many times. I was an exchange student. I, ha- I bear no grudge toward Russia. But I don't, I, the Russia that I see right now under President Putin is a different Russia. I should say Russia is more the same, but Putin has changed. And Putin's control of Russia is changing as we speak. I think it's very dangerous for the world, and I think it's very bad for Russia. So I'm going to end on that, and I cannot resist trying one more time to show these photos. And if it does not work, so this is just kind of setting it up. Okay, there's the studio. Let me just make sure I can stop. That's the studio in Moscow. And we, we actually are in a building that is in a great location, which is right on the route where President Putin drives to work every day when he goes to work. Sometimes he stays in the Kremlin. But we can no longer um, use the roof. We actually used to stand on the roof of that building. It was petrifying in the winter. And then we had a studio. But then we decided that we would get this live shot, which you can see here in the back of me. It's a live shot from that beautiful location that we have. And we use it as kind of a chroma key behind us. So in the morning, you see the sun coming up. That's, um, that is our studio. There I am, you know, looking at the camera doing live shots. And then this is, yeah, that's what it looks like on screen. That actually was one morning when bleary eyed, I was doing live shots. So you see the sun coming up over here. Um, Let's see. Oh, good. I wanted to show this fast. Man on the left is Lukashenko, president of Belarus, where they had those military operations. This is President Putin. Um, I do not think he's looking good. You note the pot belly. He looks small and kind of a little strange. He's been looking puffy. I'm just putting this as a note. Check that out. I mean, this is not, you know, buff. President Putin. This is the spokesperson for the foreign ministry who mocked, her name is Maria Zakharova. Every day she would mock the idea, even the idea that Russia would invade another country. This is the parliament, the day, see, I was going to show these as I talked about this, but the parliament, the day that they passed uh, and recognized officially those two breakaway republics. Putin has been doing almost all of his uh, meetings with anybody remotely. He has been in isolation for two years because of COVID. Um, He occasionally does meet with people. You've probably seen that crazy picture of the 20 foot long table that he sat at. And, uh, you know, that may be another thing where he's been so isolated. This is the front of my hotel. These are the the, uh, Rolls Royces and Bentleys that are driven by rich Russians. Um, They would easily run you over with that car. However, I was always very careful exiting the hotel, so I didn't get run over. But um, these are the people who are going to have some trouble because they may not be able to get to their money if it's abroad, and they may not be able to get to their yachts. Too bad. Um, Then, this is a woman... Uh, who bravely came in the back there saying no war and what what they're lying to you on this television station. This woman 
is one of the key anchors for state television news. And this woman, who actually was a producer for, uh, for the television network, jumped up. She was arrested. She has been released with a fine, but we're not quite sure whether she will be um, charged with more serious crimes. Theoretically, she could be charged for 15 years. I told you fake news is a word, and there's the proof. That is uh, another Russian station using that word, fake news. Uh, this is TV Rain, the head of TV Rain. Her name is, her last name is Sindeva, very brave journalist. She is one of the last independent outlets that was shut down. They actually shut themselves down. And here are some of the young workers as they literally had said goodbye because they can no longer function. It's called TV Rain, TV Dorscht. And they were saying goodbye on YouTube. Um, I hope that they will be able to come back in some form or another. But both they and this guy with the beard, this is Echo Moscow Radio, which also is relatively independent. Both of them shut down last week because they cannot function uh, in the circumstances right now. Um, this just very quickly, this is a little part of, this news, of the screen for a news show that I would watch every morning. And this is downtown Kiev. You might recognize Maidan Square, okay? Now, Russian state television would show this every day. And on the bottom, it says, situation in Ukraine. And then in the middle, it says Kiev, Ukraine. And Priyamasi chess means right now. So actual picture. And they show this because they didn't show the bombing that was taking place in the suburbs and other parts of the city. It's just the height of, you know, lying that Kiev was just fine. It's a little more coverage of the war. They showed their own people, this guy right here is Russian military, handing out civilian supplies to the people in the Donbass region. Of course, peaceful troops, I'm not saying that they didn't do it, but they are using this as propaganda to say that their troops are peace-loving. Mr. Putin again, this time, with uh, women from the airline industry, which is very hard hit. And this is the last picture I took in the bureau. I was working late at night and uh, I went into the newsroom. And you know, I've been going to CNN Moscow since the late 80s. And as I said, I was bureau chief for you know almost a decade. And it was a very sad moment. It was very late at night, everybody had left. And I took this picture because I don't know whether I'm going to go back. And it makes me very sad. So, but that may be, you know, the price of what is happening right now. So sorry for that technical glitch, but I'm glad those pictures showed up eventually. And uh, happy to turn it over to John. Thank you, Jill. John, welcome to the stage, so to speak. Um, John will be our moderator. John Rash will be a moderator tonight, like I mentioned earlier, um, editor and columnist uh, for the Star Tribune. So, John, all yours. Um, Jill, for taking part today, for sharing her experience and expertise. And as she well knows, because I've had the opportunity to interview her on multiple occasions, I have a whole lot of questions, but I want to get to yours 
especially in the limited time we have. So I'm gonna jump into one from Sherry Mueller here. And she would like to know how real do you think, um, well, I think I'm gonna screen, scroll back up real quick. I think she was asking about um, how real is the chance, how worried are you about President Putin using nuclear weapons? Jill? Using, using nuclear weapons, okay. Um, I do not believe that he will use nuclear weapons because that would be the end of the world. And it literally would be, as we know, um, a nuclear exchange with uh, real nuclear weapons would be literally the end of civilization. So I don't think Putin wants to do that. What he did do about a week or so ago was he put his, or maybe a week and a half, he put his nuclear forces and all his deterrent forces on high alert. Now, it didn't change technically anything. They're still functioning the way they do. But what he was doing is signaling and threatening and sending a message that he is very serious about what he's saying. And by the way, we, Russia, have nuclear weapons. I do think, however, that there is a real danger, not in those strategic, you know, the ICBMs, the big missiles that are in silos or uh, on submarines or in bombers. I think what, what could be dangerous would be, as they call them, tactical nuclear weapons, things that are shorter range that might in a pinch be used. And, you know, I, it would be really um, very highly, highly dangerous because you can't use nuclear weapons in Europe and not have it affect the entire continent. But I would also be worried about, uh, and I know the US government for a fact is very worried about other you know, bio weapons or other types of weapons like that, chemical bio weapons that there is grave concern that Russia might use them as it has used them in Syria and other places and the idea of the warning from the US government is Russia might use it and use them and blame it on the Ukrainians and say the Ukrainians did it. So we have to be very aware of that. It would be highly, highly dangerous and very serious. And I think would be a game changer in how the world would look at Russia. Very quick follow-up question, please. Um, it's an open conversation and controversy in our country about how the decision, if ever to use nuclear weapons, would be made at the executive level with the president himself. To what degree has Russia been transparent about how that decision would be made? And is it your sense that it would be solely President Putin's or would it have to go through more individuals or institutions to use them? I believe that it is President Putin. Um, but, and, and he has a suitcase kind of like you know, our president. Um, I don't know, I really don't know whether there is any other method of doing that. But there are, as both sides do have kind of like that dead hand where if you were attacked once, there's an automatic response that I don't believe the president has to be involved in. That it's simply, but that is, as I said, that really is nuclear winter and the end of all of us. So let's hope that doesn't happen. Thank you, I'm gonna to get to the next question. Um, and it is, how real do you think is an alliance between Russia, China, and Iran? Um, Russia, China, yes, uh, they already have a type of alliance. And I think Russia is turning to China more and more. 
because they don't have, obviously, they've alienated all of Europe, you know, the, all of Europe, much, you know, Japan, They're, they don't have a lot of friends left. China, however, is, and they have, I should be precise, they have a lot of military cooperation, they have some economic cooperation, they um, talk about moving to an alternative currency as opposed to the dollar, and they consider themselves friends. In fact, President Xi said they have an unbounded friendship, I think was the word that he used recently. However, the Chinese are very careful. They've been very careful in the Ukraine situation. They abstained from a vote at the United Nations when they could have voted with Russia. Um, they are very, you have to watch their statements are very calibrated because they do not want to destroy the relationship that they have trading with the Europe, the United States and others. So I would watch that space, but you can definitely um, say that Putin is turning to them more and more, both as a, there were reports recently about asking for military assistance, a uh, little murky, not quite sure exactly what he was asking for, but um, it's, it's watched this space and Putin would like it to develop. A uh, quick follow on on that, if you don't mind, please. Um, as you're aware, there was uh, scheduled to be a meeting between Presidents Xi and Biden regarding this issue. And when the 5,000 word pact was signed prior to the Beijing Olympics that announced a partnership between Beijing and Moscow without limits was one of the words that they used um, in a very kind of public nuance by China. How is that playing you sense in Russia? To what degree is President Putin and others around him frustrated by this because they're looking for unconditional backing? Well, I mean, Russia wants a relationship with China very much, and especially economically now, because they, they're going to need some help. And it appears that they may even need some military help in Ukraine. But I think Russia, just kind of big picture, the challenge for Russia is not to be overwhelmed by big brother China, because they're, you know, it is laughable to even compare their economies. You know, Russia's economy, the last time I looked, before the sanctions, was about the size, I believe, of California's at the most, at the most. So they, and now it, it is really being decimated by the sanctions. So, um, you know, the, Russia could actually, except for the nuclear weapons issue, which it has more of, China is building more weapons right now, but still nowhere near what Russia has. Except for nuclear weapons, China is a much more powerful country than Russia. So it has to watch that China does not eat its lunch. Indeed, and the sanctions, of course, as you mentioned, which were extraordinarily stringent, have had a significant impact on the global oil market. Less discussed seems to be agriculture and the impact. And it's a great question from Michael Manns of how would Ukraine rebuild even if a settlement is reached? Could the Ukrainian agricultural industry come back on stream in time for 2022 planting? That is a fabulous question. And that is a question right now that people are looking at because in the areas, in the agricultural areas, it's a big producer of wheat. And right now there's grave concern that they will not be able to do their planting. And if they can't do their planting, that is going to affect wheat all around the world. It's a very, it's a major producer. 
And, you know, if you get into the destruction that's taking place right now, who is going to rebuild Ukraine? Russia is not going to rebuild. Yeah, I guarantee you, they're not going to rebuild. So it, Ukraine is going to require a lot of help from Europe, probably from the United States, even to build back those cities. It is so needless and it is heartbreaking to see this. But this apparently is what Putin feels he has to do to take it to the wall, to keep Ukraine in control of Russia along that border. Indeed, there may be a Marshall Plan um, revision here in, in some respects, once hopefully this conflict ends. Um, you mentioned, of course, um, Russian propaganda talking about Nazis running and running over Ukraine. Um, and they, of course, have a Jewish president. And so we get, we get a question here from um, Anna, who asks, can you update us on what is happening with the Jewish community in Ukraine? You know, I actually don't know. I mean, I am presuming that they are suffering along with everybody else because bombs are not distinguishing between Christians and Jews and Muslims. But as far as I know, they have quite a vibrant community. Now, that is not to say that there are not neo-Nazi groups in Ukraine. There are neo-Nazi groups in Russia. There are neo-Nazi groups in the United States. But what Russia has done and you see it on the Russian state media, is they show constant pictures of neo-Nazi punks, you know, with their uh, swastikas, et cetera. And they use them to define the entire country of Ukraine. And that's where, you know, you have to say that is fake. That's as if we took, you know, pictures of the Proud Boys or some group like that and said, this is America. And we know it isn't. So. But, but this is what Russian propaganda is doing. And the, the pictures are very scary. And don't forget, this is a part of the world that literally was attacked by the Nazis, you know, what, 70 years ago or whatever. And so um, people remember, grandparents remember. And when you say Nazi, it really means something to them. So by having the Kremlin use these pictures of neo-Nazis, it strikes fear in the hearts of people. And when people are fearful and people are emo emotional, that is when propaganda works. We have just a couple minutes here. And so if anyone else has any questions, please feel free to send them in in the chat function. I'm going to ask one here. You spoke about the physical isolation President Putin has self-imposed over the last two years, meeting with the military members via Zoom or some kind of video chat. Mm -hmm. 20-foot-long table, him and President Macron sat in when um, the French president tried to mediate the conflict before it began. But he clearly seems to be not just diplomatically isolated, but isolated from the truth. And I'm wondering, as a longtime observer of the Kremlin, you know, how, how plugged in is he on, number one, how the world is viewing this war outside of Russian circles? And number two, if he himself may be surprised by the relative lack of military success compared to the lightning fast blitz that his general and his key military advisors promised him. You know, John, I think that's an important question. Um, there have been reports. Now, I do not know these for a fact. 
But I do, I do know for a fact that two uh, intelligence officers, heads of the FSB, which is the you know, K- former KGB, their external um, service were put under house arrest. And that is an indication or it's being interpreted as a sign of displeasure by President Putin for the lack of really good intel on what was going on in Ukraine. It's obviously an intelligence failure, massive intelligence failure. Also, there have been some reports that members of the high members of the military as well are being, you know, put under house arrest or at least controlled. So I think you're getting a picture from inside the Kremlin that President Putin is not happy with what he was told. Now, what was he told? Well, in any, you know, um, autocratic regime, the president wants to hear what he wants to hear. So the sycophants who are, you know, members of his administration know that the boss doesn't want to hear something bad. So they have a tendency to tell him it's great. And don't forget, in recent years, President Putin has been um, developing, the Russians have been developing very sophisticated new weapons. And there was a video I remember at least a year ago that showed, maybe you remember this, where there's um, a missile that hits um, in Florida right near Donald Trump's house. (laughs) So it was when Trump was president, so it's probably going back two years. It was kind of a signal, well, we have these missiles that can really do anything. I think Putin began to believe his own propaganda and drink his own Kool-Aid that he had much more sophisticated uh, weaponry. And I can tell you in that speech, he also talked about uh, domestic um, uh, inequality in the United States, racial problems, economic disparities, et cetera, making the point, he would make the point that America is on its way out. It's weak, it's divided. Again, Ukraine isn't really a country. America's on the way out. China's the rising force. Europe is just slavishly in the hands of the Americans and they're all morally corrupt. They're all gay. I mean, really, truly, this is, I am not exaggerating. This is it. Uh, In fact, some Russians, like official Russians, call Europe, instead of Europa, they call it gay Europa. So um, I don't know where you start, but I think he began to believe what his propaganda was saying. Well, that's quite a compelling point to finish on. I know all of us could um, certainly hear much more of this. We greatly appreciate you joining us. I'm going to turn it back over to Carolina, but Jill Doherty, thank you very much. Thank you, John. And I'm really, again, very sorry about those pictures, but I hope they helped a little bit to understand kind of what it looked like and how it felt. So it was great to talk to everyone. Thank you, Carolina. Thank you, Jill and John. Uh, And thank you all for attending today's Global Conversations program and and, and for such an insightful conversation, both of you. Uh, Everybody, make sure to check out our calendar, globalminnesota.org, for information and to register in all of our upcoming events, such as our upcoming conversation on April 13th with Ambassador Ross Wilson and Margot Squire regarding their recent service in Afghanistan. 
I hope you all enjoyed our conversation today and happy St. Patrick's Day.